We live in a uh, fascinating time in 2019. I was having coffee with Paulie Sheaves this week and he was telling me about Voyager 2. And Voyager 2 uh, is a space probe that was launched in 1977, I think the year of Paul's uh, birth. Um, it was sent out 40 years ago and basically Voyager 2 has, uh, has gone through what they are calling the heliosphere, um, which in uh, layman's terms is a bubble that surrounds our universe. Um, this, was, uh, this was a probe that was sent out 40 years ago and it's been collecting data. And basically they've discovered that there's this, um, this elusive boundary that marks the edge of the sun's realm and the start of interstellar space. And what this probe does, it sends back signals um, telling us all little information that it's collecting. And it's, when the probe sends back a signal, it takes 16 hours for the information to come to us. And there was a, a scientist who was saying this week um, that they're, you know, they're discovering things in the universe that we've never, never known before. Um, but he was saying in regards to this, um, this probe, it's, a, it's an incredible time, it's an incredible moment um, in, in mankind's uh, history. But he was saying the knowledge that it's giving us is like looking at an elephant under a microscope. Um, and so we live in a time where we're discovering things that we've never known. We have um, these space probes that are going out that we sent out 40 years ago that are at a point now that are collecting data and, and revealing things to us that we're sitting there going, wow, we didn't even know these things existed. And then you've got scientists saying this is incredible, but this is like looking at an elephant under a microscope. And there is so much that we know and there is so little that we know in the same breath. And one of the things I wanted to remind us of as we started off this morning is that um, we serve a God who isn't looking at um, the grand things in this world under a microscope. He isn't looking at an elephant under a microscope. We serve a God who knows everything um, in its completeness because he breathed it into existence. And so no matter how much knowledge that we can gain in this life, no matter how much we explore, um, we are only going to explore a, the smallest percentage of what God has actually created. And I wanted to remind us as we, we came in, the posture that we came in this morning is that we serve a God who is all-knowing. We serve a God who is all-powerful. We serve a God who is magnificent. Um, and we serve a God that is awesome. And we serve a God that cares about the littlest details in our life. So he's a God that has complete perspective over everything that goes on in this world, over the universe itself, over everything that exists. He has complete perspective, but he also is a God that with that perspective cares about the smallest details in our lives. For us during this week, it's so easy for us to get caught up in the little things, the mundane little habits that we have in our lives, little things that make up our day, the busyness of our lives. Whether it's raising kids, whether it's working long hours, chasing after passions, navigating life, paying bills, whatever it is, there are so many things that make up our lives that um, cause us to focus really heavily on what is right in front of us. And weeks go past, months go past, years go past. Amy and I always, we'll, we'll jump on our phone and we look at the photos that we've taken. And we do this little thing every few nights where we look at photos that we've taken and have a look at the boys and we just realize how quickly they are growing up. And it doesn't take long by just scrolling down these photos to go, hold on, that was six months ago. That was the ridiculous haircut we gave them a year ago. Um, and, and it doesn't take long. Like you sit there and you go, how has a year passed? And you just start to realize that time is just going quicker and quicker. And I'm, I'm realizing, and some of you guys might be able to help me with this, but it seems to be that time speeds up as you get older. Um, 
but we like we have this like this this routine and these rhythms that are going on for us, and it's so easy for us to get caught up in in with in with what is right in front of us. And in that, we are completely feeding on things and taking things in. So we are allowing all these different voices into our lives. And this is more true in 2019 than in any other time in human history. Because we, pick, we can pick up our phone, we can pick up our smart device. Um, and in that, there are the voices of millions of people, billions of people around the world who are trying to speak to us and who are trying to fill our minds with information and trying to fill our hearts with, with new thoughts. So who we listen to, who we allow to speak into our lives is really, really important um, because we can fill our minds with noise. We can fill our minds with information. Who we listen to, who we trust in the day-to-day, in the busyness of our lives, when we are on the bus on the way to work, or when we're on the train, when we're just having 10 minutes to ourselves as, um, as the kids are going to sleep, what is it that we're filling our minds with? Because the truth is, like in our time in 2019, the thing that is discipling our generation, the thing that is discipling us um, are they, is social media. So things like Facebook, things like Instagram, even things like YouTube are um, discipling us, put, putting inputs into our life in a way that we've never experienced as humans um, in, in the world's history. So we are living in a generation that's discipled by these different mediums. And these mediums are really interesting. One of the things I've been learning recently is that um, all of our data is being collected. So when you're on your phone, um, your data is being collected. Data about where you are is being collected. The sites that you are looking at, the habits that you have, the things that you're always looking at, the things that you're always allowing to shape into your life, that data is being collected. And that data then gets used um, against you in terms of marketing by some of these different companies. So things like Facebook and Instagram, they know the habits that you have. They know the way that you spend your time. They know the things that interest you. They know the things that frustrate you and they use these things um, against you. So we're living in a generation where um, so many of our young people, for instance, this is their norm. Um, if this was not my norm as a teenager growing up with these things but for the kids that are growing up now this is the norm this is all, all that they have experienced in this life and they are being they are being raised they're being discipled um, by these things now things like Instagram YouTube Facebook they have algorithms and I just I just find this stuff fascinating but they have algorithms where they want they get they take the information that we have they take the data that um, is in that we um, the data that they collect on us and the habits that we have and the, the routines that we use and the way we use our phones, where we go, when we go places. And they use this stuff um, to increase our usage of their programs. So for instance, YouTube, um, the recommended videos on YouTube. So when you watch a video on YouTube, there'll be a, a video that comes up next to it saying this is recommended for you. 70% of YouTube um, views come from recommended videos, right? Now, YouTube has this algorithm where what they want you to do is they want you to be frustrated or angry with the things that you watch because when we're frustrated or angry, we're actually more interested and we actually engage more with what is in front of us. Facebook uses the same thing. And so we have this... Um, 
we have these mediums that we think are really innocent. We think they're just these things that we jump on. But behind the scenes, there is these algorithms that are trying to get us addicted to these things. And there are these algorithms that are trying to get us to engage with their, their mediums, trying to get us frustrated with what, they're, what we're watching and what our input is. Because if we are frustrated with some of the things that we are watching, say a debate that comes up, we actually end up engaging with it more. There are these algorithms to the things that is discipling our generation that are just so, so damaging and so, um, yeah, so damaging to the generation that we are growing up in. So this is what is normal for us. You talk to any young person at the moment and uh, Instagram will be, you know, a big thing for them, Snapchat, these different things. And these things have behind them these foundations that are not um, helpful and not, not edifying for us. So we live in a really fascinating time in 2019, a really fascinating time. So the questions of who we are being discipled by, who who are we allowing to speak into our lives on a daily basis in the mundane, in the small little moments of our lives um, is massive, is huge. And it will shape the, the course that we go, it will shape the paths that we walk down. And so that's why I love that we're looking at the moment um, at ancient wisdom. The scriptures are full of stories, they're full of um, passages, they're full of examples of, of people who have lived and walked faithfully with, our, with God, um, but some of, these, some of these stories are thousands of years old. This morning we're going to look at the book of Daniel and the, the character of Daniel. And Daniel is over two and a half thousand, the story of Daniel is over two and a half thousand years old. So although we live in this time in 2019 where we are exploring places that we've never explored, um, we are... Um, experience in cultures that um, we have never experienced as mankind, um, one of the things that stands true is God's word. It speaks true, it speaks powerfully, um, regardless of, of how we move forward with things like technology. And so I've been really encouraged by looking at Daniel over this last few weeks and just um, soaking in the, in the book of Daniel. Because Daniel was a man that, when we think about Daniel, we think about some of the um, massive stories. And that's we're going to look at some of them this morning. Um, they're stories that when we're sitting around the, the dinner table with our kids or with our grandkids, um, some of the, the stories from Daniel are the ones that we want to bring out. Um, I, I, we read Daniel in the lion's den with our boys um, a few weeks ago and they were just fascinated by this story. Um, so it's, it's got these huge book, these huge moments, these huge stories in the book itself. But the thing that stands out to me is, as we start this, um, this journey in the book of Daniel today is just the faithfulness of Daniel the faithfulness of this man. He was a man who desired to spend time with his father. He was a man that cared so much more about the voice of God than the voice of man, regardless of who those men were and the positions that they had. Daniel was a man who led a life of passion, integrity and faithfulness and he was a man that didn't compromise. And in doing so, God blesses him um, incredibly. We're doing this story on, the, on God using imperfect people um, for his kingdom. So I just want to pray into this um, as we start, and then we're going to go through the journey of Daniel. So Father, we want to come before you as your people and as your family. And Father, we know we live in a really interesting time. We know we live in an interesting culture. We know we live in a culture that is confused, that is isolated, that's lonely. We live in a time and a culture that is um, crying out for truth, crying out for a relationship. And Father, we want to thank you that we come together as a family this morning and we are known by you. We want to thank you that you have, um, you have covered us with your grace, that you've taken us from our old life to the new, 
and that you've poured your spirit within us. Father, I want to thank you that your words are faithful. I want to thank you that your words give us pictures of hope. I want to thank you that you are the author of life. And so, Father, I want to pray that you'd open our hearts and our minds this morning as we look at this character of Daniel. Father, I pray that we would learn from him, that we'd be encouraged by him, and that he would shape some of the ways that we live, some of the choices that we make, and some of the postures that we take. Father, we thank you that you're good. We thank you that you love us. In your name, amen. This morning, what we're going to do, we're going to look at um, some, some highlights from the book of Daniel. So if you've got your Bible, open up um, to the book of Daniel. But basically, um, at the start of Daniel, we read um, that Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And he did that in 605 BC. Now, Nebuchadnezzar in the book of Jeremiah is described as the destroyer of nations. Um, this is an incredibly powerful king um, who had um, who had incredible resources and who took so much land and so much, so many nations um, under his wing. One of the things that Nebuchadnezzar did, and it's been used by dictators, it's been used by warlords all throughout history, is what they would do is, is Nebuchadnezzar, well not, what Nebuchadnezzar did and what so many people have done in his position throughout human history is that when they took over a nation, what they would do is they would take the best of the best um, from that nation. And so in chapter 1, verse 3 to 5, we read um, that Nebuchadnezzar um, takes the best of the Israelites um, as they came and took over Jerusalem. It says that they took young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians and the king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years and after that they would enter the king's service. And so this was a really clever thing for Nebuchadnezzar to do because when they took over a nation, they took basically the best leaders that that nation had and then assimilated them into their cultures. And so by doing that, they would take the influences of their time, of those, of those countries, um, and they would raise them up in their own cultures to then, um, to then lead in their own nations um, or alternatively just to take out the best leaders of that nation and basically to cripple the leadership of, of, um, of the young people growing up in that nation. And so also what they would do is they would give um, these people new names. They'd give their, the, the people, um, these leaders, these young men, new names. And by doing that, they'd change their identity. And that was, that was the, um, the hope. So we read throughout the book of Daniel, and this is really important. Daniel, um, Daniel's name means God is my judge. And that was his Hebrew name that, he was, that was spoken over him. And they changed his name to Bel, Belteshazzar. Um, and that name means protector of the life of the king. Um, the king of Babylon. To Hananiah, um, Hananiah had, Daniel had three friends, which we, we know um, through the book of Daniel. Um, but Hananiah, Hananiah's name, his Hebrew name is God is gracious. And they changed that to Shadrach, which is the commander of Aku, which is the Babylonian moon, moon god. And so, um, so Hananiah's name is, is changed to the Babylonian moon god. Mishael, um, which means who is what God is, is changed to Meshach, um, which is a play on that name, uh, a Babylonian um, play on that name, which is who is what a coup is. So they're changing out the, the Hebrew, the Yahweh, they're changing out um, God um, from these names to then put that into this Babylonian meaning and speak this over, a new identity over these young men. 
Azariah, which is the, the fourth of the young men, um, his name means God has helped me. And they change his name to Abednego, which is servant of Nabu, um, which is basically the servant of Babylonian wisdom. And so what they were doing is they were speaking these new identities over these young men, over these young leaders. And it's a really important thing in terms of assimilating um, these guys into their culture. And so in Daniel 1, we read uh, a famous story that many of us will have read before. Um, but it's where Daniel um, basically takes his first stance. And so these young men would be put through three years of training. Basically, they'd be going through their university de degree on how to serve the king um, and how to, to gain wisdom, how to gain knowledge, how to be able to serve in the king's court as best as they could. And Daniel's posture um, is really interesting. Daniel's posture in, in Daniel 1 verse 8 is that he resolved not to defile himself um, in his heart with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. So he has no problem with his name being changed. He has no problem with being educated in the Babylonian ways, in Babylon, Babylonian cultures. Um, but here we have him taking a stance um, against the food that is in front of him. And you only have to talk to Angie to know about the importance that food has in culture. Um, but here we have this, this really famous story where Daniel says to the person who is overseeing him, he says, please test your servants and after 10 days, give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. And then compare our, compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food. It's a really bold move by David really early on. He's starting his degree here um, in the Babylonian court as an exile. Um, and he's saying to his overseer, um, I don't want to eat the royal meat that you have in front of us. I don't want to eat the, the meat that the king eats. Um, instead, can you serve us vegetables and water and then test us to see if, if we're in better shape than the, the other, other people that are around us. And so we, we read that God had gone ahead um, and in verse 9, God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel, which is really, really interesting um, as a theme. At the end of the 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. And so the guard took away their choice food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. I would be so angry at Daniel if I was one of the other young men. And that was the conclusion that um, had happened. So after 10 days, um, the, the young men that are around them look worse off than Daniel and his three friends. And, and it's noticed, it's on it. Um, the challenge that Daniel had put forth as an exile, as a young man, um, to someone in the royal court who was his leader is actually honored, which is such a strange thing in the first place. Um, but they look better, they're in better shape, they're healthier, and it's noticed. And, uh, and, and it goes on to say in verse 17 that God rewards their obedience. To these young four men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. So here we have this really simple posture that Daniel takes. As the king of Babylon is coming to assimilate Jerusalem, he's coming to um, put in the Babylonian cultures and the Babylonian ways, he takes out the best leaders and he tries to train them up. Um, Daniel is extremely wise with the battles that he picks. And this one was a really simple one, but a really profound one as a college student um, that, that starts, the, the, uh, that is the beginning of, uh, of many other wise battles that Daniel, Daniel takes. In verse 18 to 20, we read this um, at the end of their study. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them into his service, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. 
The king talked with them and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah. And so they entered the king's service. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. Now Nebuchadnezzar was surrounded by some incredible magicians and enchanters. He had the best leaders from all around. Um, And here he finds these four men ten times more profound, more wise, um, because God had gone ahead and filled them with wisdom. So in chapter 2, we read um, about Daniel interpreting Nebuchadnezzar's dreams. And throughout Daniel, we read um, a few interpretations of different dreams that that are really integral um, to, to this book. Basically, in the cultures, in the ancient Near East, kings were believed to receive messages from the gods. So they had a special, um, a special position where if you were a king in the ancient Near East, um, you, you would receive these visions, you would receive these dreams, um, and, it was, and it was known that you would receive them, you were expecting them as a king. Um, and so when they came, they were really, really important. So here we have this story in chapter 2 where the king has a dream. Nebuchadnezzar brings all these enchanters in, he brings all these magicians in to interpret this dream. And he says to them in verse 5, If you do not tell me what my dream was and interpret it, I will have you cut into pieces and your houses turn into piles of rubble. But if you do tell me the dream and explain it, you will receive gifts and rewards and great honor. So tell me the dream and interpret it for me. So he sounds like a fantastic guy to work for. Um, But here you have this guy who has brought all his magicians and enchanters into the room and told them, to interpret the dream, but he hasn't actually told them what the dream is. So the astrologers reply in verse 10, No one on earth can do what you ask. No king, however great and mighty, has ever asked such a thing of any magician or astrologer. And what the king asks is too difficult. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods, and they do not live among humans. This made the king so angry that he issued a decree to put all the wise men to death, And men were sent to look for Daniel and his friends to put them to death. And so um, one of the the officials comes to to Daniel um, and uh, and gives him the news that you're going to be killed because no one can interpret this dream. And the story goes on that Daniel says, give me a night um, and uh, and I'll interpret the dream the next day. And so the official says, you can have the night. And during the night, Daniel receives this vision. Um, And so he goes back to the king the next day and, uh, and he gives the king the vision of, of uh, the dream that the, the king had dreamed and he interprets it for him. And, uh, and you have this incredible moment where all the magicians, all the astrologers couldn't do this, but Daniel um, was able to do it and, and God had filled his mind with the dream that the king had. And Daniel, the king then says to Daniel, Surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the Lord of kings and the revealer of mysteries. For you were able to reveal this mystery And then the king placed Daniel in a high position and lavished many gifts on him. He made him a ruler over the entire province of Babylon and placed him in charge of all its wise men. Moreover, at Daniel's request, the king appointed Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego chief ministers over the province of Babylon while Daniel himself remained in the royal court. We're talking about an exile. We're talking about a young man who was an exile and now he is overseeing a ruler of the entire province of Babylon um, in a short amount of time. Last week, Ken preached um, an outstanding sermon. If you haven't listened to it, if you weren't here last week, then jump on the, the podcast. I really encourage you to download that because it's a really, really um, good sermon on the book of Esther. 
Um, but one of the lines that is in the book of Esther that Ken brings out is, is for such a time as this. And this, um, this line is so true for, for Daniel as well. Daniel was a man that was positioned. God positioned him beautifully in the king's service. And Daniel honors the king over and over and over again. But there are key times where Daniel uses wisdom to stand against what is going on or to posture himself in a way um, that shows who the God of gods is and the king of kings is. Um, And he wins the king's favor in that. And God blesses him during that process for such a time as this is, uh, is very much the theme of Daniel. In Daniel 3, we go on to the image of gold, and I absolutely love this story. One of my, uh, yeah, one of my favorite stories. So Nebuchadnezzar was a, a proud king. He was a narcissist. He wanted everyone to know of his glory, and in his heart, he wanted to be worshipped as a god. This is a man that was incredibly powerful. And so he goes on and he builds a statue that's 27 meters high. Uh, me and Craig got out the, uh, the laser measure of this, this week, and we had a look. So the roof is exactly 10 meters high. So this is two and a half thousand years ago. They, they, he builds a statue that's nearly three times the size of, uh, of the roof there and he builds it out of gold because why not? That's what you've got. Um, so he's got this basically 30 meter structure um, and he, the, the law that he gives is that when the, the harps play, when the music plays, everyone um, will come and they will bow to the statue wherever you are. Um, and so when the music plays, you will bow to the statue of Nebuchadnezzar um, and you will worship him as your god. So everyone is ordered to do this. Um, and in, ver- in chapter 3, verse 12, we read there are some, um, they get dobbed in. There are three men um, in this story as the key um, people in this story, and that's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Um, in, this, uh, in this story, we have Daniel who he's off doing his ministerial duties. He's not, um, he's not in the kingdom at this time. And so um, you have this, uh, this verse in chapter 3, verse 12, where um, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are dobbed in. So they're told to to worship the statue. And in in chapter 3, verse 12, we read, There are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and they pay no attention to you. Your majesty, they neither serve your gods nor they worship the image of gold that you have set up. Now, one of the things I love is that Daniel isn't actually in this story. One of the things I've learned about great leaders is you know the quality of the leader when they are not actually there. Um, with their people. And so here you have this, this moment where Daniel um, is with his, um, he's raised with his three friends. They go basically to uni together. Um, they're, they're good friends. They're in service together. But Daniel is the leader um, of the four of them. And here you have this moment where Daniel is not with these three men and they have this test um, basically before them where they have to work out, are they going to bow to the statue that is in front of them um, where all of the thousands of people, powerful people who are around them are going to bow? Um, are they going to bow to the statue that is in front of them or are they going to take a stand, uh, a really public stand? And when the music goes on and everyone around them gets to their knees, these three young men stand to their, to stay standing at their feet and they deliberately posture themselves against the king and the law that had been given. So his three understudies make a really big decision. If you've got your Bibles, open up to, to Daniel chapter 3, verse 15. I want to read this, um, read this over us. The three men get called before the king. And in chapter, five, in chapter 3, 15, we read, 
Now, when you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, the pipe, and all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down this time and worship the image that I have made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. And then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know that your majesty, we want you to know your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set up. And then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and his attitude towards them changed. He ordered the furnace to be heated seven times hotter than usual and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men, wearing their robes and trousers and turbans and other clothes, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up the three men. These three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. And then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, certainly, your majesty. And he said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire and the satraps, prefects, governors, and royal advisors crowded crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was there a hair of their head singed. Their robes were not scorched and there was no smell of fire on them. And then Nebuchadnezzar said, and this is just profound, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defiled, defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own. It's a profound posture that these three men take. And because they take this profound, post, this profound posture, um, you see this profound conclusion uh, in this story. We see the miraculous. We see God show up. We see an angel walk with them. Um, and it's an incredible moment. What I love about this is the three um, names that these, these men have had spoken over them, they choose not to accept. So the three names that Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah had spoken over them um, were ones of the Babylonian gods. But instead of walking in those names, they walk in the names that are true um, to what has already been spoken over them, to act their actual identity instead of being assimilated. So the three names, the three meanings of the names that these men carried was that God is gracious who is what God is, and God has helped me. And there are three themes that are in this story. Um, these are the new names that they have been given, the, the kingdom-orientated names. Um, these are the, the vision, the God's vision um, over their lives instead of an earthly vision. Um, and so what ends up happening is they walk in the vision that God has um, spoken over their lives. They're true to it. They're faithful to it. And then um, they, these three men are promoted. The final story that I want to look at is, uh, is the most famous of all of um, the stories in Daniel. And we read that Daniel had received so much favor from the kings that he had served. Um, his wisdom had set him apart. All of the leaders that were around them were, were jealous of, of Daniel and the three, um, the three other men. 
And because of Daniel's great wisdom, because of the insight that he carried, because he carried the Spirit of God with him, the king planned to set him in charge of the whole kingdom. So we can't forget, this is a man that was an exile. This is a man that um, had uh, he, Jerusalem had been taken over. And he was an exile that was about to be put in charge of all of Babylon. And this enraged the other leaders, the other ministers, and they went about trying to find fault in him. But the scriptures say, says, say, say that he, they couldn't. It goes on to say that their assessment of him was that he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. And they go on to say we will never find any fault in him unless it has to do with the law of his God. So they tricked the king into signing a decree that stated that no one could pray to anyone but the king. They tricked the king knowing that uh, the king is a a narcissist. They trick him knowing that he wants to be worshipped. And they want to find fault in Daniel. They want to find a reason to get Daniel um, killed. And this is, I think, the most profound verse in all of the book of Daniel. It says, Now when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, He went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened towards Jerusalem. Three times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to God, just as he had done before. So as soon as he hears this news, he goes home and he prays. And the line that I love, the line that stuck out with me over the last few weeks is this line at the end, just as he had done before. So throughout the book of Daniel, we read about Daniel's um, insights and his wisdom. We read about his character. Um, We read that he was a man that was set apart. We read of the miracles that he was a part of. We're about to read about um, him in the lion's den. We read about all these miraculous things with Daniel and all these incredible things. But the thing that I love about Daniel, the thing that I love about this book is this one line, just as he had done before. He went up and prayed to God. He went and spent time with God. He went and spent time three three times a day um, with his father, just as he had done before. This was his rhythm. This was his routine. This was the way that he was spending time with his father. This was the way that he was getting inputs into his life in regards to his relationship um, with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. This was the routine that he had. And this, because of this, because of the relationship that he had with Yahweh, because of the relationship that he had with his father, he walked in step with the Spirit. He walked in step with his father and he was filled with insight. He was filled with wisdom. He knew the heart of the father. Um, We read um, in David that David was a man after God's own heart. As I was reading Daniel this week, I was just, um, I was reminded of that spoken over Daniel, over David. um, And I really think that should be spoken over Daniel as well, because he's a man that is after God's own heart. Um, And the thing that he carries is this faithfulness and the steadfastness um, um, to outwork the things of the kingdom in a scenario, in a setting, in an environment that was incredibly difficult to do so. He was a man whose character couldn't be faulted. His work ethic couldn't be faulted. His insight and his wisdom couldn't be faulted. And they couldn't be faulted because he walked in his life in step with the king, um, the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And so this verse is my favorite verse. I love this more than the, the actual miracles themselves because this is the verse that shows the way in which he had a relationship with God and God had a relationship with him throughout the entirety of his life. He spent time with his father. So the story goes on and it says that uh, the king basically apologetically puts Daniel in the den with with lions. The king knows he's been tricked. 
Um, but he, uh, he has signed this decree and he can't go against the decree that he signed. And so he puts Daniel in the, uh, in the lion's den. And in Daniel 6 verse 16, the king says to Daniel, who he's very fond of, may your God whom you serve continually rescue you. And then we read that the, um, the, uh, the, the den is shut and Daniel spends a night with the lions. And I love the idea. I've thought about this a lot um, as I told this story to the boys over and over. The first, <laughs> first few minutes would have been a nervous few minutes for Daniel, I reckon, um, as, he, uh, as he got put down there and um, he's surrounded by these lions who, um, who wouldn't have eaten. Um, would have been a first nervous few minutes, maybe a nervous first hour. But after that first hour, like Daniel would have known. Um, he would have known he's in the company of angels. He would have known that God had shut the mouths of lions. I think it would have been a really fun night. I think it would have been a really fun night to be surrounded by these, these powerful creatures and just to spend a night knowing that you, your God has triumphed and you are surrounded by these incredible animals, probably you know using them as a pillow. Um, and uh, I think it would have been a really, really profound night. I've thought a lot about it. But um, in the morning, the king, the king hasn't eaten. He, um, he comes running out. Uh, as, uh, as, uh, as the sun comes up, he comes running out and he, he comes eagerly up to the, 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 um, <laughs> the den and uh, he screams out to Daniel and Daniel's reply is, my God sent his angels and he shut the mouths of the lions. They have not hurt me because I was found innocent in his sight. Now have I ever, now have I ever done anything wrong before you, your majesty? And so you have this, uh, this beautiful moment um, where the, Daniel has won the favor of the king. And even as he's won the favor of the king, he's continually put to the test. And you have this beautiful moment where he spends this night with the lions. And this is towards, uh, yeah, towards the end of the story. The thing I love about, about all of this is just the fact that Daniel trusted. He was a man that trusted God. He was a man that walked with God. He was a man that was filled with insight, was filled with wisdom, but he walked with God and he trusted God above the opinions of people. He trusted God above the opinions of kings. And so one of the things to, to remind us of, um, we are filled with so many voices in our lives, so many voices that are trying to scream out for our attention. Our young people, um, your kids, your grandkids, are filled with so many voices that are trying to fill their attentions. Um, and those voices do not have the vision that God has for them. They do not, that, those voices do not have the intent that God has for them. Um, those voices do not have the vision of love and grace and mercy that God has for us. And so I want to remind us and encourage us, the posture that Daniel took was one of relationship with his father. He spent time with his father and he walked faithfully with God and God walked faithfully and beautifully with him. And I want to remind us, we live in an age um, where this is becoming harder and harder um, to do. This is becoming harder and harder for young people to do. Um, and so I want to encourage us that we um, a call to posture ourselves in a way where we are enjoying God. Because the more that we enjoy God, the more that we allow Him to fill us with insight and wisdom and joy and grace and mercy, the more that we will outwork that, that in profound ways in a culture that is crying out for God's love and God's mercy and God's joy. The more that we get on our knees, like Beth and Adzi encouraged us to do, and spend time with our Father, um, will we'll shine a light. We will we'll leave us to be a, a city on a hill. Will leave us to shine a light in the darkness in a culture that is crying out for us to shine that light. Um, the thing that Nebuchadnezzar wanted to do for Jerusalem, for the Israelites, for the people that they conquered, is that they wanted to assimilate them into their cultures. 
And one of the things that's been critiqued of the church is the church looks so much like the culture that you can't distinguish the two. The way that we will distinguish ourselves in the culture in that we live is that we need to be in relationship with our Father because He desperately desires to be in relationship with us. And when we are walking in step with Him by allowing Him to give us a new heart and a new spirit, when we are walking in step with Him, we will be positioned in the right ways, in profound ways, in really beautiful ways, in the different areas of our life that we're called to be in. Whether that's our family, our workplaces, our friendships, whatever it is, um, we will be called for for such a time as this to make a stand in really small ways and in really big ways in the way in the different areas that God has called us to live in. So I want to remind us and encourage us to do one simple thing this week and it's just to posture ourselves before God. In some ways it's the most simplistic conclusion from a book like this, but it's also the most profound thing that we will ever do and it's the most achievable thing that we will ever do is to go and just spend time walking with our Father Spend time on our knees before our Father because when we do that, we will be a part of something incredibly profound as we usher the kingdom in in 2019 in a time that desperately needs us um, to, to be a light in the darkness. Let me pray for us. Father, we want to thank you that you are the author of life. We want to thank you that you have spoken wisdom um, over us. We thank you for your scriptures. We thank you for... Um, the many different examples we have of people who have just walked faithfully with you, people who weren't perfect, people who were broken, people who had, who had struggles, people who were imperfect. But, Father, people who had hearts that desired um, your glory above their own. And, Father, I just want to thank you for the story of Daniel. Father, it's a story that is old. It's an example of a person who lived a long, long time ago. And yet, Father, I just want to thank you for his faithfulness. I want to thank you for the example of his faithfulness to us. And I just want to pray that this week we would be a church, we'd be a family that just carries the same posture that Daniel had. Father, I want to pray that you would help us to walk in step with you, to just enjoy spending time with you. I want to pray that amongst all the anxiety, the busyness, the stuff that we carry, the things that we have to do, that, Father, you would be at the forefront of our mind and the forefront of our heart. And Father, I thank you that you promised us in Ezekiel 36 that when we do that, you will be the one um, that excites us to follow you. You will be the one that gives us a new heart. You will be the one that, give, that, um, that pushes us to follow after you with everything that we have. And so, Father, we just give our lives over to you. We humble ourselves before you and we thank you that you're a God that is good. We thank you that you're a God that is loving. In your name. Amen.